Back in the bedpans, you gentle Declans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I hope you've all had a charming week. I got wonderful feedback for last week's podcast, which was about Irish rivers and their relevance within Irish folklore and mythology. I'm finding myself drawn more and more to Irish mythology recently, specifically because of its relationship with the land and the nature and the weather of Ireland. As I explained last week, Irish mythology was recorded in an oral culture, a culture that didn't have writing. So these stories were told to preserve information about the environment and about places and about lakes and rivers and trees and mountains. So because of that, because it was written in such a unique way, it's very easy to connect with a story that might be 4,000 years old because the rivers and mountains that it was written about are still exist today. And I noticed this myself. Like when I write my... Like I'm currently writing a book. And I wrote my first two books, mostly over in Spain. And there's a, there's a genuine difference between writing in somewhere like Spain and writing in somewhere like Ireland. With Spain, you get a predictability. Because the weather doesn't change. If I sit down in a cafe in Spain with a laptop, I can say to myself, I'm going to stay here for eight hours and nothing's going to change. It's going to be dry, hot and clear all day long. It's like creating a a laboratory environment, a controlled environment. But in Ireland, you can't do that at all. The thing with Ireland is, no matter what time of year, the weather is violently unpredictable. It could be freezing cold now. Then in a half an hour's time, the sun comes out and it's too hot to wear a jacket. Then you take your jacket off and all of a sudden it starts pissing rain. And that can all happen in the course of one hour. And if I'm sitting outside writing, then obviously that's disastrous because I could have my laptop and all of a sudden it starts raining without warning. But even if I'm sitting inside in a cafe somewhere, it could be nice and quiet and then suddenly it's full of people because it's raining outside. And the unpredictable chaos and anxiety and madness of that always finds its way into my writing in some way. And I adore that because it means that the environment and the weather and a cloud or the rain is like the hidden hand. It's like my co-writer. The other thing too about Ireland and the weather and storytelling. You're always having a little internal conversation with the sky when you're in Ireland. You're not doing this when you're When you're in somewhere like Spain, you might say to yourself, Jesus, it's a bit hot. I'll go over there to that shadow. Or I need to cool down, I'll get a drink. That's about the extent of it. But in Ireland, you find yourself talking to clouds in your own head. It could be dry, but you look up and you see this big angry purple cloud. And you have to talk with it in your head. You have to say, what's your plan? Are you coming over here? How much water is inside in you? You look very dark. You're going to fucking soak this place in about five minutes, aren't you? And then you squint and you notice that the clouds that are closer are moving quickly in another direction. And then you hope that that moves the big fat cloud above it so that you don't get wet. Or you find yourself leaving your house and looking up into the sky and seeing the blackness in the distance and almost pleading with a cloud in your own head please don't come over here because right now it's too hot for a jacket and an umbrella 
and I don't want to do that. Are you going to fuck my shit up in 10 minutes? The rapidly unpredictable weather in this country demands a consistent conversation with it and demands a type of internal narrative and storytelling. And I find that present in old, old Irish mythology and it fascinates me. So I have a guest this week. And this week's, this week's podcast is, is almost a part two to last week's podcast. You don't have to listen to last week's podcast to appreciate this week's episode. But if you do, you will have a greater appreciation of it. I'm going to be chatting to a writer and a documentary maker by the name of Mancon Megan. Mancon has been on this podcast before. He's an authority on Irish mythology, Irish folklore, the Irish language... He's an incredible storyteller and a fascinating person. And he's who I kind of go to when I have questions about Irish mythology and Irish folklore that I can't find answers to. Also, he happens to have a book out right now that just came out last week called Listen to the Land Speak, which it's about Irish folklore and Irish mythology and its relationship with the Irish environment. And if you're interested in buying that book, uh, buy it at mayobooks.ie. That's M-A-Y-O. Because if you do that, Mancon gets a he gets a better profit share of the book when you buy it on that website. They might have a couple of his books. His last book was 32 Words for Field. So me and Mancon had an absolutely wonderful chat. I learned a lot of fascinating things about Irish mythology and Irish words. And I reckon ye will enjoy this too. Before I get into the chat, I just want to plug my Vicar Street gig that's coming up. Um, my Vicar Street gig on the 1st of November is sold out. I added a second Vicar Street live podcast on the 2nd of November. The tickets are going for that quickly. I won't be adding a third date. And this will be the last po- live podcast I do in Dublin this year. It'll be a lovely Wednesday night gig, which is a perfect night for a live podcast because you can go to one of my live podcasts like you would the cinema or the theatre. You don't need to fucking drink. You don't need to go mad. You can be home in bed at a reasonable hour and up the next morning. So if you've ever wanted to come to one of my Vicar Street live podcasts, this is your last opportunity this year on the 2nd of November. All right, here's my chat with the wonderful Mancon Megan. Um, so Mancon, you're back again and I had you back on because my podcast last week that I did really overlapped with a lot of themes that you and I speak about and when I was doing the podcast I was thinking of yourself and then I realised you have a new book out at the moment now so I figure what a brilliant time to get Mancon back on. So firstly I want to mention your new book which is called Listen to the Land Speak. So what is the new book that you're doing what was the process like uh, making it? So, you know, I had had that book, whatever, 32 words for field, which was looking at the insights that the Irish language gives into our psyche, into the landscape, into the other world, into our heritage. But I decided I'd love to look at what, the, ask the same question about landscape, like what insights does the landscape give into all of these elements, into our, into the old world, into our psyche, into the other world. Mm-hmm. And, because I think I told you last time about this thing that was in the Shanachas Moor, the great collection, the first 
literary writing down collection of our great ancient or you know literature that went right right back is is the shanicus the one that's a little bit like a glossary like an ancient glossary of places no, that's the Din Shanachas. Yeah, it is. The Din Shanachas is that. It's the glossary of places. But the Shanachas more is just, a, it's actually the first written collection of all the old law tracts. And so what Shanachas mean? What does that word mean, Shanachas? Shanachas just means lore. It means lore. Sha- okay. Yeah, but it comes from Shan old. So it's basically old, old thing, the old thing, ah, you know, right, the okay. old information, the old lore. And um, the Shanachas more, in other words, the big collection of the old lore was just all the ancient law tracts. And it seems like when linguists look at our at our written heritage, they see the law tracts are definitely the oldest because they're in a language, a really, really primitive, really early form of Irish language. So it mm-hmm. seems that although they were recorded in the 8th century, they're way, way older, but they were passed mm-hmm. down from mouth to mouth by the Druids in a way that they never changed. They they were mm-hmm. so we get these insights into way old uh, um, culture. And in one in the the the, the Shanachas Moor, this gra- vast tract of knowledge, there's a question, and it says, "What is the preserving shrine?" In other words, how is information kept from the old mm-hmm. age to now? And it says, "What is the preserving shrine?" And the answer is easy: it is memory and all that is contained within it. Okay, so that's just mm-hmm. it's giving honor to the druid, to the shaman, to the the male figure normally who kept the the lineage, the climate um, information, the information right, right back to the first settlers alive in their minds. And then it asks the question again. So the first time it says, what is the preserving shrine? Easy. It is language. It is memory and all that is preserved in it. And then to reiterate the question, it asks the question again, what is the preserving shrine? And the second time they repeat the question, they say, easy. It is landscape and all that is preserved in it. Mm -hmm. So what they're trying to say is that the Druids, the, the, the ritual priests who kept all the knowledge from the ancient, ancient times, maybe back to the first settlers who came here nine or 10,000 years ago after the Ice Age, kept the memory alive in memory, in other words, in songs and in mm-hmm. rhythms and in sagas. But the, how weren't they, how were they going to keep that memory alive without it going astray? Because as we know, or without writing, about, in the absence yeah, of writing. Exactly. From mouth to mouth doesn't work because we change. We change it every time we say it. Yeah. But you see, once you encode it into the land, once you have a, a story that then is connected to a particular landscape, you can't get it wrong um, because every adventure, every insight, every story is connected to a particular place. So actually, all of our information is encoded, is like held in memory, is banked in the landscape. And that's so what, what would I be want. a practical example of that? Because the one thing that's jarring me about that is I live in, like right now, like I'm worried about my fucking memory because I have a, a smartphone. Mm. Like I, I kind of don't even have to remember shit anymore because I just have it on my smartphone. It's there. And to think of a culture whereby writing doesn't exist. So we need to keep the history within the landscape. Like, what does that look like? Is that, I mean, is that like last week, I, I my podcast was about the history of the River Shannon and how the mm-hmm. Shannon came about when a woman called Shannon was messing around with Conlon's well. And then you had this beautiful yeah. story about the River Shannon. Like, is, is that an example of what they mean by this? Myths and stories about specific elements in the landscape. And once you have that, you don't forget shit. Exactly. So 
in some way you could tell the birth of the Shannon is just a story about a young girl, you know, but actually it's all the information that's encoded within that story. And luckily, we're only beginning to realise the story that's encoded now because experts, because like scholars are going back into the myths and reading, reading into them, seeing the, the information that's in them. So, for example, the Shannon, Shunna, the young goddess, or otherwise um, T.F. O'Reilly, the great Gaelic scholar who was mm-hmm. a relation of mine connected to the O'Reilly, he had this idea that it was actually Shan Anya, Shan Anya, old Anya, Anya being the goddess of Munster, the, the powerful god. Anne means brightness or illumination. And so Anya is the genitive of, of, of Anne. So mm-hmm. basically the god Anya of Tuatha Dé Danann, probably de, the Anya. Anya is everything in Munster. She is the goddess of the warmth, of the sun, of the light. And so the Shunna is either Shan Anya, old Anya, or Shunna, a goddess in herself. Or also it could be Sinna. Sinna means a teat or a breast. And what all of these things point to is that she is the maternal, she's the earth goddess, she is mother earth, okay? Mm-hmm. Sinna, the breast, where the, where the humans suck on for their nourishment. Shananya, but then, or Shana, a young girl, but then why would it Shananya? Why would it be old Anya? Because if we're saying the whole thing about the story that you would have told last week was a young girl seeking more knowledge, seeking more information, so she goes to Kun as well. But then why do we have Shananya, which is old Anya? Because Remember the Kailach? The Kailach is the personification of ancient hag, the old woman, mm-hmm. the wrinkled old woman who brings in the winter, who destroys life and vibra- vibrancy and fertility and creates the blackness, the demise, the death, the, bl- the, 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 yeah, the destruction of winter. But according to that old lore we had, the Kailach was the exact same person as Bridget. In other words, the young, fertile, nubile representation of spring. So mm-hmm. we and we you mean now, Saint Bridget there? No, I think I mean well. I mean both. I mean the pagan goddess Bridget, who then became Saint Bridget. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're the exact same thing. But you see, because you and I think in a linear way, we think someone is either old or young. Okay, or we think someone. But of course, we have to break out. Our ancestors didn't think linear. They didn't have linear time. That's no, a very they, Western thing, a modern thing. Your everything was circular. So that's why the Kyla who destroys winter, she's the exact same being as the Bridget who brings in spring. She's both ancient and young, as all of us are both evil and good. We are all both ancient and young. We're all both wise and stupid. And is that because, like, so th- that secular nature of time there, is that because time to those people was very much about the seasons exactly exactly all they could see was the sun coming up and going down they could see the crops growing and then dying everything was was circular was seasonal nothing was linear and they had a sense like that that idea of Samhain of the first of, of November the idea where the dead would come back to the living so it wasn't mm-hmm. even about linear lifespans the the human being would have a lifespan but then they could um, we could reconnect with them at, uh, at Samhain everything was was linear so just to give you a sense so let's say the Shunan so anyway she's this young goddess as you say as you two would have told she went to the, to the to the well so why does she go to the well remember she wants to become a better communicator yeah that's what I want to know why is she an artist what does she want what knowledge does she want yeah. And, you know, you would have come across a few different versions of the story, but actually, and some say she's a, a 
poet and she wants to have even better mm-hmm. poetry. Some say she's a musician and say that she wants better music. Some say she's just a young leader and she wants to be more wise. But all of those three things are saying the same thing. She wants to grow. She wants higher consciousness. She wants to expand herself, to be more creative. Self-actualization. Exactly. So that she can then touch more people, so that she can shine more brightly. That's all those three things so that she can shine more brightly. Okay. So what did she do? She goes on a voyage like the Buddha did, like everyone did, like Mm -hmm. every seeker does. She goes to Kundalwell, the well of longevity, the well of wisdom, the well of insight. And she gets enlightened, according to the story. But then, as you would have said, the well rises up and drowns her. Now, when we're listening to these these stories, the beauty is we need to use our own intuition to listen Mm -hmm. to them and read what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Now, for a certain point of that time, a young girl wanting, as you said, Mm self-actualization, wanting insight, that resound, that resonates with us because that's what humanity Mm -hmm. have always done to do. The woman then, or the young girl then getting drowned, being destroyed by by, as she seeks it. No, that mightn't be true. That could be a male layer that's put on top of it. Either the male druid or the monk's or maybe even the 19th century transcribers who were of a Victorian male would have seen, oh, look, this is an uppity young girl who wants to grow more, wants to expand, wants to get into her power. Let's change the end of this story to say she dared, and by daring to do it, she gets killed. Just as a little message to any other uppity women, this is what happens if you dare to get out of your own limited place. Because it would, like, you you contrast that with Fionn McCool, you know, he was told, don't fuck with that fish. And he fucked with the fish mm-hmm. and he got all the knowledge in the world. There was no cautionary tale there. Exactly, exactly. So we, so it's a really exciting time where there's really good researchers going back to these mythologies and realising, okay, we haven't been told the full uh, history of it. And one tiny thing I just want to point out there as well, Mancon, that I adored about that story with Shonan. So I was reading it as... Okay, she was a poet and she wanted inspiration. And what I loved was uh, when I want inspiration, what I look for is flow. That's what I want. I want creative flow. And I just adore that here I am using the English language and the accepted term for to, to achieve inspiration in psychology of creativity is flow. And again, it's water language. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, like, what, what yeah, the fuck's that yeah, about? Yeah. Like, creative huh. flow is an established word in, in, in creative psychology. <laughs> You're so right. Yeah. And we all know, every one of us listening to this realize we do get a sense of bigger intuition or a sense of ease or clearer thinking with water. Whether we even go to a lake. Yeah. Or to see, or even the water shower. and flames. Water, like, water, staring into water or staring into flames. Both of those things. If, if I, because I, I spoke last week, I was talking about what the Shannon means right now and the mythology mm. of the Shannon right now. And right now it's quite dark. And what I was mm. speaking about was, I'm in Limerick and in Limerick, we, the Shannon is fucking huge. It's the mouth of the Shannon. The Shannon is a huge part of our city. And I, throughout my life, will often go to the Shannon just to look in because I want that daydream mesmerizing that the, that, that the current will give me. I can't do that anymore because the rate of suicide in Limerick is so high that if I, as a man in his 30s, especially after dark, choose to look into that river, people will stop their cars or suicide prevention people in high-vis jackets will come and stop me 
which I just yeah. found. I found that profound yeah. because that's the mythology of the river now. It's like this was created because Shona drowned and flowed down the river. And I, without even knowing this story, go to the river looking for inspiration. And I'm not allowed because it, it triggers a trauma response in people now. That's what the, that's what the landscape tells us now. Trauma. And Jesus, we have the helicopter Jesus. that we call the mechanical banshee. Oh, God. Uh, there's nothing I can say back to that except how far we've gone. As you said, it's a perfect yeah. example of how far we've gone. There's a beauty in it because in a way we're carrying on that tradition in a way, but there's also a tragedy in that beauty. Totally Even true. like I said, the mechanical banshee, no one decided that. No one said, oh, wouldn't that be a clever name? It's what we call the helicopter hmm. and its relationship with yeah, the River yeah. Shannon, the mechanical banshee. It's still there in, in our, I don't want to say DNA, but it's there in our fucking Irishness and how we speak. So where are we? We're, we're in this place where, as you say, we're in a place of real, of real grim despair. And yet somehow we have clung on to the knowledge that can lead us back. We haven't lost mm -hmm. it. We st it's still in stories. It's still in the songs. It's still in the books. But as you're saying, we've got so far. So this is almost the moment. Either we grab it now and we re-listen to these knowledge and we redirect ourselves to how our ancestors did get nourishment from rivers, how they did get healed. Mm -hmm. um, or we keep on exploiting our rivers. We keep like all of the rivers in Munster now are just polluted with nitrates. Yeah. So Fuck it's me. a yeah. it's it's and and this great movement to steal so much of the water from the Shannon and just exploit and bring it over to Dublin. Um, mm -hmm. So we're at For this, the data we're at centers. This, yeah, we're at this knife point. There's, in the 10th century text, the, coll the colloquy of the two sages, it says that the bank of a body of water was a place where knowledge was always revealed for poets. And you see the exact same thing in India. That's why you go to Varanasi and you go to Dara, to uh, the Ganges and everything is about what the wisdom comes from rivers. It wasn't just an, an Irish thing. It was an Indo-European thing. The rivers flow, as you say, they bring new energy. They, they inspire us. They're not meant to be places of death. They're not, they're mm -hmm. not, they're just not. Um, um, one thing I wanted to ask you there, because I found it fascinating. When you were speaking about the story of, of Shona, Shona, you were you you just casually mentioned. Oh, by the way, my relative TF O'Reilly. Like, how does it feel for you to be doing this work that you're doing? And when you consult the writing on it, you're literally consulting with your direct ancestors, as if you're conducting a type of family business. That's mad. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what to make of this, and I hadn't thought about you know, until I made that connection with Aegon O'Reilly. You know, the last great poet of the Bardic um, tradition, who was writing from about seventeen sixteen forty to about seventeen thirty, and it was mm -hmm. thought that he was. I think I told you on maybe a podcast before. He was entitled to wear the cloak of crimson bird feathers. Now, this is a poet or an olive. He was such a high ranking. What year fellow. are we talking here? This is 1640 to 1730, wow. so the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century. 
And he was, most people acknowledge it, he was the last of that bard of the bardic tradition. And if he's entitled to wear a cloak of crimson bird's feathers, that's pure paganism. That's Druid. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because what happened, we had the Druids and obviously before the Druids, we must have had some sort of matriarchal culture because the Druid, the Druid kings are Brahmins. They're male. They're powerful male figures. Okay. But mm-hmm. they obviously, they were nature worshippers. So they saw the God in the bird, in the eagle, in the oak tree, in, in life. And so they would have worn almost like this shamanic cloak of the bird feathers because they got their power from the birds, as so many, you know, primitive animistic cultures did. So along Mm -hmm. comes Christianity and the Christians say, St. Patrick says, no, we can't have Druids anymore. We're bringing the new law in, but you can keep some elements of your Druidic power. So the Druids, just like they were identical to the Brahmins, really, in the same way as the Brahmins can be very elite and posh and snobby and exploitative mm-hmm. today. And so were the Druids, to be fair. Any any powerful figure that is given so much, you know, so much um, respect, normally it sort of rots. W- were they viewed but, as magical or simply uh, very learned people or very learned men? I mean, it's, it's hard to know, but it seems they claimed at least they had magical power. They had so many different strains to them. They were the historians. They were the collectors of the lore, of the genealogy. The key thing was that they they remembered the genealogy of the people. And you see, that's why the king couldn't be a king unless someone traced his genealogy and said, you're, you're entitled to be a king because you can wow. trace yourself back to the first settlers. So there was no computers. There were no libraries. It was all in the Druid's head. So that's why in the town of Kulna and in other stories, the the druid is the king has to defer to the druid. The druid tells the king to do something, and the king does it because the druid had memory. That's, the druid is basically Google, you know. But he the has, druid then is obviously a very corruptible individual. Totally. Was there any stories of people either threatening a druid or bribing a druid or getting a druid? Because it'd be quite convenient if the druid lies and goes, "Oh, you're actually the son of God" or something like that. Or do you know yeah, what I mean? So, yeah, so there are, there are, but in this way. So let's say the Druid is pre-Christian, so we don't have, in a way, a written account. But the Druid comes along and St. Patrick says to him, um, you either have to go or you can become a poet. You can become a filler. So you can keep wow. your literary side. Because the Druid has two has three different Oh my God, here. I didn't know that. The Druids became the poets. They Well, become, they became the Druids, and the poets, and they became the early saints. Okay, so you imagine the Druid... Okay. The Druid has everything. The Druid has, he has all the knowledge to the genealogy, all the knowledge of the history. He also has the power to manifest, to say words and that they would manifest things like Amrigan did, the great Druid, the great poet. So his words could manifest reality and also his words could curse and could bless. His words had magical ability in the world to, to manifest and create things. Um, and he was also a spiritual sort of um, a high priest. So he had all those elements. Mm-hmm. Along comes St. Patrick and he says, no, we're the spiritual high priests, but you can keep your literary element. And if you want, the Philly, obviously the poets, the Philly and the Olive, and Olive is just a high poet. Olive, which is now our modern word for professor, but originally meant mm-hmm. a high poet who had done like many years of study. They said, okay, we'll keep our poetic abilities that we can compose, we can say things with words, but our, actually we're going to claim our words actually have impact in the world. They can manifest things. So Aegon O'Reilly, my great-granduncle, four times removed, and those great-great-great-great-granduncle who lived in um, in Schlievluchr on the Cork Kerry border in, as I said, the end of the 17th, early 18th century, he was renowned for being able to, He was his, his expertise was at the air, the satire. And his satires were mm-hmm. so dark and so powerful that they, can, they could raise a fadab on someone's cheek. And a fadab means a welt. 
So he mm-hmm. was his words could actually have physical impact on the world. They were like so, a slap. Exactly. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, they could. They could. You could. You could curse a person's cattle with the words. So there's loads of accounts of the poets using this power of, um, like kings were so afraid because if they if they wrote a satire against the king, mm-hmm. they could pollute the land, they could pollute the cattle, they could pollute the kingdom uh, with their words. So there's loads of accounts of poets being corrupt and going if they mm-hmm. if they didn't get the right hospi- hospitality from a king, they would write a really evil slur on him, and then the king would be destroyed. Um, and so. That filler, by doing that, the, po- the the corrupt poet was actually following the corrupt um, druids' traditions. So what you have there is the modern equivalent is how po- how certain journalists or how certain news channels would be in the pocket of politicians. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, when we're saying that the king, you know, is afraid of the poet, yeah, saying a satire, the reason that the king is bribing the hell out of the poet and giving them the best of things, and even the Knight of Glynn, you know, Desmond mm-hmm. Fitzgerald until he died, whenever 10 years ago, he was so good to the poets and the artists and the harpists and musicians of around Glynn, of, of, of Limerick, of South Limerick, Kerry mm-hmm. Border. Because he recognized that his ancestors, the Gaelic chieftains and the Norman chieftains, had always been good to the poets. The reason they had been, for two reasons. First, they were patrons of culture, like the Domicis. Um, mm-hmm. But also, well, the Domicis had an agenda. They were trying to create the Christian church. But the Gaelic lords and the Norman lords really probably loved the arts. But also, they wanted the poet in their pockets, so the poet would then praise them and increase their okay. power and yeah, and stress. And then um, becoming a poet becomes a pretty cool job because you have a patron forever with a ton of money and you're sorted. Exactly. Were there any hipster ones then? Were there any like, so if, if you think of it back then, all right, there's your local poet and it's like, oh, look at him. He's got his fancy clothes, whatever. He's got all the money in the world. But everything he writes, he's writing good things about whoever's in power. Were there any like hipster countercultural lads going, fuck that. I don't want your money, man. My words are the truth. I'm going to say what I want. There were actually, and um, interestingly, some okay, was so, some were early saints. So let me just two the first, punk rock the, ones is what I mean. Yeah, so I don't want two, a record label. I, I'm incorruptible. Yeah, the the two one one first is one that Chemis Heaney really um, popularized, and that was Mad Sweeney. So do you remember Mad oh, Sweeney yeah. is a king? Is a king? He gets banished and he gets cursed and sent out of his kingdom, and then he spends his life roaming the wild trees, composing this most yeah. beautiful, pure, radical, sort of Timothy Leary-esque uh, nature poetry, saying, I, I cursed a lot of you and your corrupt, greedy ways. I just yeah. want to live and enjoy the lichen on the tree and the blackberries. And, and That's, uh, he ended up in the Well of Madness down in Kerry, That's where they right, found the lithium exactly. in the well. That's right. They find minor trace, trace elements. You know, there's a man, a professor of geology, uh, Bruce Lipton from Trinity, who has he's retired and he's now gone around every well in Ireland to to do chemical analysis on every well. And wow, I, I, I knew about the one down in Kerry, but I didn't know about the rest. Yeah, the one in Kerry. Now, to be fair, I know there was a TGR documentary and said there was a load of lithium in it. It's actually Professor Brendan Kelly of Trinity College, Professor of Psychiatry, has said it's only the minus trace elements. Okay. So you, yeah, but at the same time, the story about Glaunagalt in Kerry said that the 
uh, mad people used to go there and settle there for a, quite a while. So maybe eat the watercress. Yeah, exactly. So that's you see, good point. So it's concentrated in the watercress, and clearly, if you just go and drink a cup of it, you're not going to get a little of lithium. But if you're living by it for a few months yeah. or years, then maybe you could build it up. So there could still be be truth in that. But back to King Sweeney. So we we know that King Sweeney ended up there, but so he was cursing everybody in the land. So what were you going to continue with there? I was just going to, the other examples of really cool hipster poets are the poets who became mm-hmm. the early saints. Fuck. So, so okay, the, 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 the Druid had a cho- choice. The Druid had a choice. Either I'm going to become a, a poet or filler and keep in with the kings and have my comfortable life. Or if I want to keep the sacred element, which I've always been practicing, let's say for the wow. good Druids who weren't just in their power, but they actually had connection with God and saint. They decide, okay, all I need to become is a saint. And that's why like Cullum Killer, you know, Cullum Killer, all you know about Cullum Killer. amazing. Yeah, no, Colum, Saint Colum Killers means Colum is a dove. Okay, he's the saint of the dove. Yeah. And the, where is he? He's in Derry, the oak tree. And the only thing we know about the Druids is they worshipped in Nemeta, which are groves of oak forests. They're sort of clearings yeah. in a woodland, and it's normally taught that they were oak, these Nemeton. So the Druid who was bringing his people to a tiny little clearing in an oak forest and then connecting to them with the energy of the oak and the energy of the dove he then most likely becomes Cullum Kill, Cullum Kill, and that's why all these images of Cullum of the early some of the early saints are just like nature loving Saint Francis. Yeah, and that's but, why. But the other thing too that I'm thinking is the early saints. So if we're thinking of okay, there might have been some druids who were being heavily getting a good patronage from their patrons, like. The early saints were absolute hipsters. They were like, I don't want money. I'm an ascetic. I want to live in a fucking cave. I want to live in a monastery. I I don't need anything other than the love of God and just to write these books. That's incorruptible from the power of the land. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why Rome was never comfortable with what was happening with Irish Christianity, because it kept so much of its paganism, its animism, its nature worship alive within this really controlling Roman center. And wasn't concerned with human people. It wasn't concerned with popes or bishops or people who were in power. It's the land and nature and spirituality. And we kept that alive right up until the 19th century. You know, the the, Christ, the Catholic Church did not have a hold on mainstream Ireland until after the famine. You know, we were always, I mean, there was always, I would say there was churches, but any of the big churches you're seeing in Ireland, you know, they're all 19th century, late 19th century churches. So mm-hmm. uh, the church in Ireland was a very humble, very nature, nature local nature worshipping small thing. There was obviously elements of the Roman church trying to push into it and particularly um, the Protestant church on top but actually it was a pretty humble it was very different from that powerful mainstream church and so which is positive because if we want to get back to a more encompassing spiritual practice we don't need mm-hmm. to go back to pre-St. Patrick we just need to go back to pre you know the 1850s 1860s when the church mm-hmm. realized just like they realized in Africa this is a wounded damaged people on their knees we can come over and take over absolute control Let's have a little break now for the ocarina pause where you're going to hear a little advert. Before I do that, actually, follow Mancon on social media, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. He's at M-A-N-C-H-A-N-M-A-G-A-N, Manchon Megan. Here is the ocarina pause. You're going to hear an advert that is digitally inserted by Acast. Actually, I have a new ocarina, I forgot. 
that's quite a high-pitched one. Apologies to your dogs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's a nice ocarina. Oh, it's got lots of different size holes. Okay, that was the ocarina pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This is what I do for a living. I adore this work. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to bring this podcast to you each week and to spend my time researching and writing this podcast. I love doing it. But if it brings you entertainment, solace, joy, laughter, distraction, whatever reason you have that you come listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I do with this podcast. Become a patron of this podcast is what I'm asking. Now, if you can't afford that, I understand. I've more and more people coming to me saying, sorry, blind boy, I love the podcast, but I just can't afford to be a patron right now. And you know what? That's absolutely grand. Don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. But if you are one of these people who enjoys this podcast and can afford to be a patron, all I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. Would you buy me a pint or a coffee if you met me in real life? And if the answer is yes, you can. Via the Patreon page. For the price of a pint once a month, you get four podcasts and you're paying for someone else to listen for free. It's a lovely model that's based on kindness and soundness. It's how I earn a living. It's how I pay my bills. It's how I make this podcast. And thank you to all the patrons of this podcast because what it also does is it keeps this podcast independent. I'm not beholden to any advertiser. Advertisers advertise on this podcast on my terms, but none of them can tell me what to speak about, to adjust my content in any way, because that's what they do. If you get a sponsor for a podcast, they don't give a fuck about you making the best piece of work. They want you to make the piece of work that gets the most listens. And if I want the most listens, I'm not going to do a podcast about Irish folklore or Irish mythology. I'm going to do a podcast about whatever the fuck is trending on the internet this week. Or worse, I'll try and be controversial. I'll platform some fucking prick who doesn't need to be platformed. Well, I won't be doing that because if that's what it came to, I wouldn't be making a podcast. 
But this this environment is why so many podcasts are atrocious today and why the podcast space in general has become so corporate and it is overshadowing and crippling small independent creators who just want to make podcasts about what they're passionate about which is the reason we all started listening to podcasts in the first place to get away from what was terrible about television or terrible about radio spaces that became destroyed by money and the need for ratings and listeners so support your favorite independent podcasts do it directly monetarily or just share it online tell a friend about it share it on your instagram stories tweet about it whatever independent podcaster you enjoy support them in some way i'm back on twitch on thursday nights twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast doing my never-ending musical my never-ending video game musical I'm going a bit earlier now. I tend to log in at around half seven or eight. Just a few upcoming live podcast gigs. Um, Got those two dates in Vicker Street. The first and second of November. The first is sold out. You might get one or two tickets if you checked. Someone might have given one or two back. You might get one if you checked. Still tickets available for the second. On the 5th of November, I'm in Wexford in the Spiegel tent. I'm in Brussels on the 18th of November. Oh, this month actually, on the 30th of October, I'm at the Puka Festival up in Mead. And then, 3rd of December, I'm in the TLT Theatre in Drada. Now, back to my chat with the wonderful Mancon Megan. One thing I'd love to ask you about, because I don't know enough about it, is the importance of harp music in Irish culture. Um, someone described it to me recently as Ireland's indigenous classical music. And I know that Henry VIII, I believe, I could be wrong, banned Irish harp music. What can you tell us about uh, harp music and why was it so important and why were the composers so important? Mm. I, do, I don't think I know. No, I I've met two people who are done. One over in in St. Paul's or Minnesota recently who's done some really interesting research on it and she sent me her book and I haven't even, I haven't opened it yet. So I don't know. Well, it's interesting that you go into Trinity College and there you have the Brian Baru harp that Guinness yeah. then just flicked it on its side. There's some resonance there that we need to un- encode. And it's interesting. It's, it's on our coins. It's trying to tell us something. Um, well, it was, it, whatever the fuck it was about it, it was banned. Yeah. So right. as soon as but something every- is banned, I'm very interested in it going, well, why was this so powerful? Why did you need to ban this harp? What did it mean? But like every element of our culture, wasn't it? Like our language was banned. Our holy wells were banned. Going to the holy wells in the 17th century was either there was a fine or whipping. When we say holy, does that mean Christian holy or is it a holiness that goes before Christianity? Like what is it with us and wells? Because we seem to be quite obsessed with the old wells. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't probably say holy. I should probably say sacred well. So... Like if you look at the book, the accounts, the early Christian accounts of either St. Patrick or St. Bridget or Colum Kill, they spend their whole time doing this thing called saining wells. They'd go to a pagan well and they would have a druid and a gathering of people would be around this well and they would turn up there, the, the Christian saint, and say, 
uh, I am going to rid the evil devil from your well and I'm going to bring in the God of say, of Christianity to it and mm-hmm. all of you then need to baptize yourselves in the well. So they'd, they'd turn up like this, but they turn up with an army. It was, these were like really violent. It seems they were violent encounters at the, sign, mm-hmm. at this, at the edge of every well. A bit like, uh, yeah, anyway... Um, and the act was called sainings, basically sainting, I suppose, or, you know, making mm-hmm. a well thing. So, and were these people uh, protecting their well then? Get the yeah, fuck well, away from it with this Christianity. That's right. Well, obviously, well, the church came and realized, okay, all the worshipping is happening in Ireland around these sacred wells. So we know that Nemeton, the, the, the groves in the forest where they worshipped, when the groves of these oak trees look exactly like cathedrals. It seems uncanny mm-hmm. that then, you know, in the Gothic era, we created these cathedrals that looked exactly like forests, probably remembering how we used to worship. But so they were the groves. But then in Ireland, it seems to have been these wells that were the places, because we are, the reason we know that is because there's so many accounts in the early Christian lives of the, of the early saints' lives of the saints going to the well, finding the pagans there and converting the pagans. Mm-hmm. And so what are they, why are they going to the wells? Okay, we know from so much that it seemed for me the Neolithic tombs, the ritual sites and the Nauth and the Douth and Newgrange, Loch Crew and all that, that they're all this, this passageway leading in to a womb-like center, a magical chamber at the center of, mm-hmm. a, of a hill, which looks like a pregnant woman. And, you know, the, male, the, the passageway, once or twice a year, the sun, the male, the, the sun is a male figure in so many in, uh, belief systems. So the male sends his phallus, sends his penis down through the into the vulva, the mouth outside mouth of the passage tomb, mm-hmm. down through the vaginal uh, passageway into the basically into the womb, impregnates the womb. Mm-hmm. So we know that male and female thing has always been a thing, and the land has been a female, a great female with different mm-hmm. orifices. The, the chambers are man-made orifices designed so that the phallus of the sun can direct into them. But the other mm-hmm. natural orifices, almost like these chill in a gig things, are the, the, the wells. The wells okay. are basically vulvas. They're entrances into mm-hmm. the goddess energy. And we know because in all the stories of Tiern and Og, um, and again, just with Tiern and Og, we're back to this non-linear thing because most of us don't understand Tiern and Og because we don't yeah. think of it in a. It's, it's a way. parallel universe as such, isn't it? Exactly, and it's not Tiern. And the o- is the other world and Tiern and Og the same thing? Yeah, as far as we know. So Tiern and Og, like it doesn't mean the land of of the young. It's the land of no age. It's basically the the Einstein idea of there being beyond wow. time. So it's not that people are young or old; they're just beyond time. It's 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 um yeah, it's on another realm. And wow! I mean, this because it which ties up with quant- like that's that's more in line with modern physics than exactly like yeah. than the idea of heaven and hell, which is end times, and you die, and then there's something above it. Like I love that about the Irish Christianity, or sorry, yeah. the, the Irish mythology. Yeah, it's pure Heisenberg or Einstein, exactly, non-linear sequences. And so there's so many different names for it, you know, Toch Dun, the house of the fairy lord Don, or Inis Suva, the island of joy, or Aragach, the silver house, or Mara Hyo, the, pl- the plain of two mists. Um, and it, 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 Yeah, mist is another thing. Anytime I read about the other world, it, it's within, in Irish mythology, anytime there's mist present, it's like this is something that leaks from the other world or is used to cloak figures from the other world when they try and exist in our world yeah yeah so what do you get from that so do you remember that word skim i had my first book skim skim means um it means uh, a, f- a magical mist or a fairy mist that covers mm-hmm. the land in the early morning or it also means succumbing to the other world through sleep so mm-hmm. mist was that way of acknowledging the fuzziness between this reality and all of the other realities wow. 
And that great idea of High Brazil, you know, this island that's off the southwest yeah, coast of Ireland. That was obscured by mist. Exactly. And so explorers, you know, from the 16th century on, well, really from the 14th century when it appeared on maps, used to hunt for this island. But the Irish realized there's no point hunting for it because it's hidden in the mist every, until every seven years. So going for it, looking for it, exploring it during the wrong point in that one, every seven year period is like looking for a blackberry in the middle of winter. It's just not going mm -hmm. to be there. So the Irish, it's, you know, it's a beautiful idea that there's yes and. It's not about that the some some knows exists. It can exist and not exist at the same time, which, as you said, brings Which is quantum to, physics. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so, ju just back. So, so we were talking about wells and uh, mm -hmm. we keep going on little tangents, but we were talking about wells and why wells are so important. And you were speaking about the, the rep reproductive organs of the land. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the well so it's this entranceway into the other world and the other world was you know Tirnanog whichever way you want to describe mm -hmm. it it is everything but the main description of Tirnanog is at the centre of it there is a well and the mm -hmm. well at the centre of Tirnanog so you know every well is linked to every other well it was thought because there's this underground water system everything mm -hmm. is connected like wow so, so the well in Tirnanog is a birthplace of humanity so the events even like probably of the entirety of existence starts from this well, which is why Shunna goes to goes to Kunna's well. Because if you tap into Kunna's well, the magical well underneath the Atlantic Ocean that, that gave birth to the Shannon, it's connected to the well at the center of Tirnanog. And they're all part of this mother goddess, this entity, this beingness that gives birth not only to the planet, but to existence. And do you remember... Did we have a name for that mother goddess? No, not really. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, Bih is one word. So Bih was considered to be the first person who arrived in Ireland. And Bih means, you still have it in Irish. Bih in the Irish is Rudar Bih, anything at all. A Bih is everything. But Bih wow. also means the cosmos. And so it's used, still used in modern Irish, Rudar Bih, Bih. But actually Bih means the cosmos. It means everything. But around this tree, around this well, sorry, Cunna's well, or the well at the centre of Tirnanog, they're the same well. They're just a well of everything. Just in parallel universes. Yeah, was um, these hazel trees. You know, you probably heard, mm -hmm. you know, Shunan gets her magic because the, the nine hazel trees, they're hazels in the form of Kol Krihamd, which is hazel of insight, or Bullegis, bubble of knowledge or bubble of wisdom, fall into the well. And these these nine hazel trees are not only are they the, they're not only in, they're in transforming the neutral water of the well into this potent potion of wisdom, but they're also the axis of the world in the same way as Sanskrit thought, as Vedic or Hindu thought, has this world axis being a tree with its roots going right down to the bottom, its, its, its leaves going right up, and it basically being the spine in, in yoga. You know, everything mm -hmm. comes from this central... So it's the tent post of the circus realm in which we currently inhabit. It's, it is everything. And one of the branches of this tree that overlooks the main magical well that is tied into all the other well is the silver branch. And John Moriarty spent his life trying to, the great philosopher from Kerry, try, spent his life trying to describe the silver branch. Mm -hmm. the, it's like, it's, it's impossible. It's, it's basically sacredness. It's a metaphor for a concept that's like beyond our ability to, to communicate. But mm -hmm. I'll tell you, it's said that every single living soul exists in the form of a bird on that silver branch. So 
Um, it's basically everything at all. It's just, it would blow your mind even me start. When I try and think about this, okay, around this well, which is connected to all of the wells, which is connected to all seas and all lakes and all rivers, which is the mother goddess, has these trees, which are these straight, linear, more male things. And one of the branches of these trees is the silver branch. And the silver branch is all consciousness. And that has every single soul in the form of a bird, um, whatever, perched on its branches. So that's why when you go to a well, you're tapping into basically the biggest LSD trip. Basically, it's blowing yeah. your mind. Um, and we're amazing. We kept all of that. Even the Christian church allowed us to keep these wells alive. And a lot of them have a saint connected to them. But even your local priest, when he tells you the stories about the, pre- the, well, the, the saint, will say, ah, yeah, but this was actually a pagan god who then took on the name of the saint. Because even one thing, Mankon, that I'm, I I can't get out of my head right now as we're talking about this is, like, we, we do love our holy water. Mm. Like, I, Irish Catholicism, holy water was a big deal growing up. And is our love of holy water, like, even though that's a Catholic thing, is, is that tied in with our well worship? Yeah. Um, and I, well, I suppose first I should say, you know, although it's amazing that our wells have been so important and water, the holy water from the well is real, is key. This was a global thing. It just shows, you know, there's nothing elite, there's nothing exceptional about Ireland. So yeah. many primitive cultures still have holy, sacred wells and they have magical beings, either in the form of worms or snakes or pastes or crocodiles who appear and disappear from the well. So we have it in Ireland. Egypt has it. Estonia has it. South America has it. And the idea of imbibing some of that water or taking a little bottle of that water and that water then healing you is, as you said, still powerful. You used to listen to the Jerry Ryan show or any phone-in show on RT and people will tell you what their local well, what the water... Yeah, or heading over to Lourdes for a bottle of it or whatever. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, And so it's really powerful in Ireland, but it is absolutely global too because it, it goes back to, you know pre-farming like if, if I said we're sort of Bronze Age people who arrived here four and a half thousand years ago there were the um, Neolithic people who came before but all this goes right back to the first people who were almost learning about civilization on the side of the on the banks of the Nile and coming together uh, when the Nile flooded and then disappearing or just dis, you know coming together when the Nile um, retreated and flooded dis, dissipating mm. and when it flooded and learning these things and learning that water is sacred which all and of us learning know. of course the important thing with the Nile is that Anytime the Nile would retreat and come back, it would bring with it nutrients that would be responsible for the next year's crop. Exactly, which is exactly why the Shannon is our most worshipped river. Um, there's a great because dis- it's dragon. Because the other thing I was trying to say last week when I was talking about wells, like springs and wells are fantastic because they bring nutrients from far, far deep in the earth and they bring them up to the surface. And these are quite beneficial to either fertilize crops or for our brains when we drink the water, like magnesium, calcium, zinc, all of this shit, that's hard to find in food, but it's not hard to find when you have a good source of mineral water that drags it up from the rocks. You you said it, exactly. And what a a modern, like, academic anthropologist will come along and say, oh, all of this talk of sacredness is rubbish. People worship the trees or the rivers because they grow broad nutrients, because they fertilize this crop. But what they're not realizing is it's not one or the other. It's yes and. Neil McQuitter, the great writer who writes about the trees of Ireland and the animals, he has this point about, he talks about buffalo. The reason that the Native American worshipped the buffalo is because the buffalo were sacred to them, but also the buffalo were incredibly useful. They gave the hide, they gave the meat, they gave the water, they tramped the ground, they fertilised the ground. So it's yes and. The 
the creature or the entity or the element that is most practical and useful to the people also becomes the most worshipped, which is why the oak tree was so important to the Irish. It gave us dye. It gave us pigment for writing our charts. It gave us the, the strongest wood for making our, our buildings. Um, mm-hmm. It gave us the leaves to make different tannin for preserving things. In a way, so this this is going back to the, the initial point that we opened with, which was you you were speaking about not the din shankness the not the din shankus, the other the shankus more yeah shankus more sorry and I asked the question of why create the, like if knowledge is held in the memory of the druid and then also in the land then if you have one well and this one particular well has loads of nutrients and minerals and it's a fantastic place then of course you're going to make fucking stories about it because then you won't forget it. Exactly. Yeah. Again, there's some amazing um, anthropologists and professors of geography in Minute who are really going into the wells of Ireland and are real and seeing that they there was a psychological element to wells. Sometimes all of us need a place apart, a place to calm our minds or a place if we have mm-hmm. a really sore back or if we have a pain in our head or a foot. We need a therapy. We need to go to a GP or a consultant or a clinic. The well was doing that, too. It was a place where you could heal your mind or your body uh, and so humans have always created that. Even when you go to a spa now and you listen to the music they play, they play the sound of a, a slow babbling brook. Not a big loud river, but that gentle tinkling of a small little stream or spring, it calms the mind. Totally, exactly. And you remember most wells, if you think of most holy wells, most of them will either have a sacred tree or a sacred rock or a sacred slab of stone beside mm-hmm. them. So it wasn't just the well. These were, this, you know, like we could talk about how trees are sacred to the Irish consciousness and to consciousness of so many um, early societies. But the tree had magic, had potency in it too. So often you'll have, uh, you know, an ash tree or a willow tree um, or a rowan bending over it, connected to the tree. And then there'll be a stone. And most wells have a ritual you enact at the place in the exact mm-hmm. same as most um, Neolithic stone sites, the passage tombs and all, will have this seems to be a routeway that you go around Deschel, you go around Sunwise and doing particular actions. So it's not only that you're going to visit the metaphorical vastness of the goddess, the, the, the vulva, the vagina entrance into the vastness of the, of the god, but also you are connecting with the sacred tree, which is almost the phallus, the male energy. Mm-hmm. And then you have this rock that either you are touching the rock or you are scraping the rock or you are winding your way, you're walking around the rock. So it is this choreographic movement too. It, and so you're having the psychological blissness as well as you said, the calmness, the place beyond um, and the magical element, the idea that most wells have a patron day, a day that where they are particularly on, where they are, where the interface between them and the other world is at its weakest. And who decides that? I mean, was that corresponding with nature? I mean, I know in Ireland too, we have these things called tarlocks, which are lakes that just arrive out of nowhere seasonally. Did you see that fact? Like, uh, so yeah, we've a load of tarlocks in the Burren and elsewhere in Ireland, but... Uh, how many that I can't remember? Maybe there's about 1,200 turlocks in Ireland, and mm-hmm. how many? No, maybe as I said, there's 1,225 or some turlocks in the world. How many are in Ireland? There's like yeah, one, what the fuck is that about? Yeah, there's only, it's a seasonal lake. Yeah, but there's only there there's only two outside of Ireland. Okay, 
There's about mm-hmm. the 1,222 are in Ireland and two are outside of Ireland. Turlocks are utterly unique to Ireland. And as you mm-hmm. say, nothing is more magical. A lake that appears um, either for a season or it can appear for five years and then disappear. And I love how Irish it is because that sounds like something <laughs> an Irish person would say. There's a lake over there, but it's not there now, but it'll be there next year. Yeah, That's yeah. pure Irish madness. Exactly. And most, well, a lot of turlocks, particularly the ones in the burn, will have this paste, this monster or this worm who lives in the sinkhole beneath where the where the well, where the lake appears from and disappears. When I say it's a sinkhole, sometimes you don't see the sinkhole because it's just a mm-hmm. it's just a bit of clay at the bottom, at the navel, at the umbilicus of the of this magical lake that appears and disappears. And it, it does it because, you know, it's it's, it's to do, geography, geographically it's to do with limestone systems and the complexity. Mm-hmm. But it's unique that the fact that 99.9% of these are in Ireland. You won't find them any anywhere else. Um, and it reminds me, I mean, yeah, I could spend all night if I could. Where are the other two? In Wales, I think. The other two are in Wales. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I'd love to get into the, the whole idea of for lakes disappearing by Loch Gur. But I just, there's one point I wanted to t- say from the beginning. As you were saying, the Shanach is more, and it says the memory is in the landscape. And we were saying, but you, as you say, you don't remember even things that happened a week ago. None of us did. Mm-hmm. Now, and you asked me, how did our ancestors remember? And I sort of said, vaguely, they remembered because they put the memories into the landscape. But that didn't make sense to me until this year I was out in... Um, Alberta, in Edmonton, Alberta. I was bringing my show around a gazim. Oh, just to say, you know, I have this po- I have this podcast called The Almanac of Ireland, and we've looked a lot mm-hmm. at wells. We've brought Br- Bruce Mistier, the professor from Trinity, who's doing the clinical analysis. And we've brought this other man from from uh, Minute out to wells to explain just what the wells were about to us. But anyway, I was out in Alberta doing the show around a gazim. And um, I come to Alberta, to Edmonton, and this delegation of um, really senior Cree elders, indigenous First Nations people from Canada, the Cree tribe, the Plains Indians tribe, they come to me and they present me with this ritual um, ritual top, this ceremonial uh, shirt or top. And they say, mm-hmm. we want to give you this in, in recognition of the work that's been done in um, bringing out the old indigenous knowledge of Ireland. And I mm-hmm. said first, like, no, I said, we can't use, I can't use the word indigenous. We're white. We're exploited. We, the white people wiped out the indigenous people of Argentina. We weren't great in, in North America either. And the Cree elders, very senior now, they said to me, look, the first thing is you need to get over all that shit. They said, you don't have time for this. They said, anybody who's been living sustainably for the last, um, you know, thousands of years on one island is indigenous. Anyway, mm-hmm. we, we, we got into a lot of stuff that took a few days, but one of them was called Jerry Saddleback. Now he was, mm-hmm. you know, the way the Canadians have the Canadians have just done this big truce, uh, peace and and reconciliation committee into the abuse that was happening in the residential schools, the Indian mm-hmm. schools in the twentieth century. A lot of that was done by the Catholic Church, wasn't it? it was exactly, it was indeed. Yeah. yeah, and there were three senior Cree elders, or senior Native First Nations elders, over we're looking at. And one was this man, Jerry Saddleback, and. Um, Anyway, and so he says to me, he, so he's very senior, okay? And he says, by the age of four, he was able to tell the birth story, the whatever, there's another word for that, you know, the, the, the beginning story of his people, the four-day story, the story that took four days to tell by the age of four, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, by the age of 16, he was able, or 21, I can't remember, he was able to tell the four-week story of his people, the mm-hmm. origin story. By the age of, um, that was the age of 16 or 21, now he can tell the four-month story of his people. So it's the origin story. We're talking about an oral story that takes four months to tell. Exactly. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. 
Now, there's a great Irish storyteller. Uh, there's a great Englishman who tells stories in Ireland. He tells some of the Irish stories called Martin Shaw. He had a good book on John Moriarty. But he says he needs like four days to tell a good to tell one of the Irish stories in their fullness. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, the first question I asked Jerry Saddleback, I said, "How do you remember a four month old? A four a story takes four months to tell." And he says, "I can't forget it. I cannot miss say a single word because he says before I start the story, I need to set up a whole camp." a campsite. I go out into the land and I recreate the ca- this site, the entire campsite that I have been told by my ancestors how to do, that I was told, you know, from the age of four, the age of 16, 21. So he creates round circles and that become rivers and they become mountains and become hills and becomes everything. And when he wow. starts the story on the first day, each single line in the story has a particular movement connected to it. It's pointing at a particular direction of the river or the mountain or the hill or a wind. And he is said there'll be a a direction. He'll point to a different direction for every line, southwest, east, and each direction has a particular color attached to it, which I don't know, do you know, but you know, Irish winds had a particular color attached. I know that from Flann O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a great Salter Naran, a great, uh, I think it's 11th century story that goes into detail about the the color connected to each um, wind. Anyway, so he says like, I can't miss say a line because every word I'm saying is connected to me pointing in a direction, a particular movement, a particular piece of this vast campsite that he's built out, which is a recreation of the area, the locality where the story was first told. As far as I understand, as far as I understand, that's the case. Somehow, you know, but somehow he's recreating landscape. And that's why he never gets it wrong. And that's all I can think of is that must be how the Druids did it. That's why our stories are so connected with landscape. And that's why when you read Native American anthropologists, they go into but such... They, they did the same thing. Aboriginal Australian people have a very similar practice. I think it's known as walkabout, but it's a form of storytelling that requires a specific journey to be told. or to, to, You have to embark upon a specific journey in the land and then the story reveals itself. That's right, exactly. The the song lines are the Churunga lines. That's yeah. it. And in, in Aboriginal culture, you can have one Aboriginal tribe can come to a new area, an area they've never been before, and say the song lines that they have learned, even if they're in a different language of a different Aboriginal tribe, and it will still summon up the landscape around them. And it'll summon up mm-hmm. where the water holes are, where things happened long ago, where the geological happenings happened. Um, and it seems... So, like, uh, so we have, as you say, that's the uh, Aboriginal idea. Then Jerry Saddleback is telling me he has, the, and he tells me he says, you know, he says historians say that um, we didn't have horses, and I said, he mm-hmm. says, well, of course we had horses. I know we had horses because it's in our origin story. And he said the origin story can't be wrong, and he said, so sure enough, about ten years ago, five years ago, archaeologists found horses, the remains of horses from whatever five, six thousand years wow. ago, and they expected us to be excited. We thought, we know there are horses. They're in our origin story. But then the next thing he says, he says, you know, you, you're probably, you've been told in, your, in Ireland that we came across the Bering St- Straits, the Native American people, the First Nations mm-hmm. people from Bering Straits to Canada down through North America and South America. He yeah. said, that, that's wrong, he said. It's because it's not in our a story. Our story says wow. we, we've always been here. So we know it's true. You, can, you, you you're, Your historians, your archaeologists can say what they want. I can tell you, another few generations, you'll find out differently. Because we have that story of, um, sometimes they say it's St. Brendan, that St. Brendan managed to meet Native American people uh, on his voyage. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And they're going, that's your bullshitting. Someone made that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did we lose that? Because that's what breaks my heart about so much of this shit, 
Is that mm. just 800 years of being canonized that very, very important things just get lost? I mean, the other thing too, like Ireland used to be a rainforest. Mm-hmm. And if you have a culture and a mythology that's associated with a land that's a rainforest, and then you cut it all down, specifically Oliver Cromwell, who aggressively cut down all our forests, what stories do you lose and what histories do you lose when you cut down a fucking rainforest? Yeah. Uh, two things I'd say. But I wouldn't just blame it on 800 years on the English. I, it, was the, it was the church. So as I said, when the church came in, they told the Druids, you can't keep this ancient knowledge alive. You have to, you know, you can keep some of it alive as poets. Some of it can be alive as the, as the saints. But over the years, it got rotted so that we didn't. And we don't even know. That was like, one th- that way, you know, St. Patrick came 430 AD. So 1,600 mm-hmm. years ago. Maybe the Druids had lost a lot of it by then. They might have been so corrupted that they had lost their connection. Um, so that so yeah, it's going back at least one thousand six hundred years. The other thing, the trees. Really, what happened with the trees? It's it's farmers. It's not Cromwell. We had we were we, yes when we arrived. Well, when the when yeah us the Bronze Age people came four and a half thousand mm-hmm. years ago, and when the Neolithic people who built Nauth and Douth and Newgrange came, whenever six thousand years ago, they came with farming tools that they had mm-hmm. learned um, in the you know along the Pontic Steep, and then had honed in their time in the Middle East and brought them over here and they started messing around the forest not cutting down the forest first on top of the mountains and that just made the soil slip down the mountains and it made it you know bog came after 500 years it was either it was both some some um Geographers will say that it was climate change, and some say that it was humans. It was probably a mix of both. Is that we have, we have so much peat bogs because it used to be a, far, uh, a rainforest. Yeah, it, well, no, yes, it was. We it was a it was a it was a rain. It was a coastal temperate rainforest along the Atlantic, and there was probably a mix of Scots pine um, up on top of the hills. But it was a really fragile. We'd never had much soil, but the trees had slowly grown up and managed. The minute that you remove those trees, like is happening in the Amazon now. The soil doesn't have enough any goodness to hold on, and mm-hmm. then the rain washes it off, and then you're left with this um, iron pan, this white impermeable pan that uh, water can't get through. And so then the, the the rotten whatever is the trees that are rotting are just rot on top of that, and they create and they form bog. So really, we've had it was it was farming. It was us. As the Bronze Age people, we brought these Bronze Age implements and were able to cut down more of the trees. We destroyed this land. Farmers destroyed this land. And the beauty is, like, again, this is only a realization I've had in the last probably year. I've done quite a lot of talks with Native American peoples. Um, Mm -hmm. And I go and I come out on these Zoom calls and I come out with my lovely romantic words from the Irish language that show how we're Mm -hmm. connected with wisdom and all this and magic. Um, and then, but you remember, the name of my book is is 32 Words for Field, which is quite revealing mm-hmm. in itself. Basically, I, so I come up with these lovely words about farming and fields and all the different words for fields. And then the native people will come out with words just about the beauty of nature in its own right, not how we're going to exploit it, not how we're going to create wow. 32 different types of fields. Everything, we are a polluted people because we're a farming people. Whereas the native people are more hunter-gatherer and moving with herds and not necessarily exploitative. No, and have a bit of farming. And had a lot more land as well to to move around as well, in fairness. Totally. And there's nothing wrong with mixing a bit of farming. It's this idea of let's get more and more land and farm more and more. So we were fine up until... In 1730, there was only 3 million people in Ireland. 1730, okay? Then by 1840, there's 8.5 million. 
That's when, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, I mean, even when, when there was this three, three million, 17, we were still slowly eking out into any land we had and cutting down more trees. So as you said, Cromwell, the English did a lot. They took any of the old oak they, they took. It's often said that they took it for shipbuilding. Actually, yeah. a lot of it was done for, for um, oil, for, sorry, iron oil or smelting. So to make okay. iron, ca- um, cast iron, no, sorry, um, what's that iron called? Pig iron. Glass as well. Coke, I think it's called, is it? Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. and what's the iron? The iron gate. Is pig that, iron? Yeah, no, pig iron, cast iron. And the other type of iron is... Um, Anyway, it'll come to me in a second. But yeah, you, you basically you are creating, you're cutting down oak, you're creating huge amounts of cho- coke or charcoal from that, and then you're making the iron ore, you're, you're heating up the iron ore to get the iron from that galvanized iron. That's the one, it's the mm-hmm. hammered iron. Um, huge amount of that happened in the 18th century using the last of our oak trees. Do you, do you know what I heard on top of that as well, Mancon, which is what? nuts? It, it accidentally led to the invention of champagne. Go on. When the British had an energy crisis and they needed to turn to us for wood, hmm. it was making coal, but it was also for their glass industry. The, the British had a, a very important glass industry. Hmm. And then when they started running out of wood, they started using coal. And this probably could have been the 1500s. They started to use coal and apparently the British had never really used coal because the Romans didn't use coal or something like that. So when the Brits started using coal, their glass started getting really, really strong and good. And then British glass became a a desirable commodity. Then your man Dom Perignon, who was a monk in France, he was making sparkling wine, but he could never keep it in a bottle because the bottle would keep exploding. And then finally, this British glass that was made from coal because there wasn't enough wood was the only thing that could hold his champagne without exploding. And that's how champagne got invented. That is brilliant. <laughs> that yeah. is brilliant. Wow. Good God, the world is complex. I know. Yeah, just because the Brits <laughs> were running out of tim- timber. And I the one part, I've looked that up loads. The one thing I can't confirm is this idea that the Romans apparently were like, don't use coal. It comes out of the earth. It's something about that is wrong. Use timber instead. And apparently the British wouldn't go near coal until they finally absolutely had to because they were running out of wood. And then they went, shit, this coal is amazing. We get much stronger glass. Wow. And interesting, there was a fear of coal, this black thing that came from underneath the earth. Um, so I'm going to ask you one last question, which is, I'm just going to b- bring it back to the book that you have out right now. What What's the book that you have out right now and, and what's it about? So the book is called Listen to the Land Speak. And I just feel that if we do reconnect with our land, in other words, the, the rivers, the wells, the mountains, the, the bog, there's this vast knowledge that's going to help be nourishing, help reassure us, make sense of where we are in the world, um, connect us, make us see why we as a people are different from other people, how we've been living here for four and a half thousand years. And that roots us, that makes us strong in a sense where everything else is getting lost and we have no idea who the hell we are. Once we know we've been here and we're part of this lineage that has survived in this rocky, mad, insane island for so long and have found a way not only to survive but to thrive over those four and a half thousand years, 
that can be reassuring. So that's one element. But the other element that I really wanted, I thought this book was just going to be about me telling the mythology, the stories of Finn mm-hmm. McCool and Cuchulain and connecting to the land. I thought it'd be easy enough to do. But the minute I started looking up any of the stories of Cuchulain or Finn McCool, I just suddenly realized, no, they're all there, of course. But beneath all them, there's a layer of stories about goddesses everywhere. Everywhere mm-hmm. in Ireland is a story about either Anya or Shunan or Gráinne or Etna or Fola or Eire or Banba. Basically, all of Ireland is just one big matriarchal goddess story. And all of these mm-hmm. goddesses are incredibly powerful. And the only stories about goddesses that get into our modern consciousness now are things to do with Queen Maeve, you know, a kick-ass mm-hmm. warrior, battle woman, or the pirate queen, Gráinne Way, another mm-hmm. kick-ass male type of Margaret Thatcher type of person. But actually what has been hidden from us on purpose I think is that actually all of the stories are goddesses and of course if the druids and then the priests and then the male monks and the male 19th century translators they're all only going to focus on Cuchulain and Fimical they're not going to have mm-hmm. focused on the other so I suddenly wanted to reveal it particularly because the reason that what, what blew my head away was when I went down to Limerick and when I realised about Loch Gur, I'd never thought about this Loch Gur, this sort of drab enough lake in near Bruffer Hospital in the south of Limerick City. And uh, I realised it was connected to Anya because um, Canuck Anya is just beside it, the hill of Anya. And I knew that Anya was a goddess. And as we explained, Anya comes from brightness, the sun, the warmth. So she's the goddess of, of warmth and brilliance and brightness. But then Loch Gur... I recognized something else. Loch Gur is just like, it looks like a pregnant belly, just like the new grain mm-hmm. tombs, okay, sticking up from the land. But Gur is a word I remember hearing when I was young, like Gur, which is a, a hen sitting on its eggs. Gur means oh. incubation. It's the hill of incubation, okay? So you have this land where you have an old, all Loch Gur is just full of stories of Anya, of all the different things that happen to this goddess here. And whenever there's archaeological digs done in that area, you uncover swords and shields and masses and masses of oxen bones. So in the 1820s and 30s, they were digging up um, car- crate loads of ancient ritual bones were dropped in that water and given to every museum, particularly during the famine. Everyone in this area of Limerick used to dig up these from the lake and then send them to museums all around the world as like um, signs of ritual symbols, all to do with this lake. So we have this the knocker, the lake of incubation, basically the lake of the hatching on this pregnant belly. Basically, it is the goddess Anya. Her belly is a lot. It is the goddess's pregnant belly. And then just to the southwest on the, nor- on the Cork Kerry border, are the paps of Danu, the paps of Anya, mm-hmm. the breasts of Anya. So the mm-hmm. whole of Munster is basically one big mother goddess. Now, I'm used to going wow. to, as you say, Australia, or going to South America, or going to Africa, and having indigenous people show me this type of thing, that the land is a goddess. I did not know that. I just thought we were about little nice stories about Finn McCool and Cuchulain on his chariot. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a lot more powerful than that. Everything is about this knowledge we had that we were the, we were in tune with the sun, which was this male great thing. The land was a female and we were just tiny minions in tune in cycle with that. And I decided I'd like to put this message out there now. And so what I was trying to convey in Listen to Land Speak is a sense of all that. The land has all of this knowledge to give us. It's connected to the mythology and most of the mythology is about the power of women. And just a little question there about how Irish mythology as we learn it becomes hyper-masculine and quite violent. You know, you learn about the great warrior Cúchal and Fionn McCool, all this. Does that have anything to do with, we'll say, the Gaelic revival? Like, I know 
I know that certain mythology was brought back as a way to bring manhood back to the men of Ireland so that they would fight the British. Like, I know the GAA, that was part of the things about bringing back hurling, was to give Irish men back a type of violent masculinity so that they would fight. Is is is, is that a thing? And do you think that played a part in, we'll say, silencing stories of, of goddesses and women and the more feminine side? Yes, yeah, totally. Um, I, I suppose first when I say, you know, the, the female, it's, not, it's like it's the female in all of us. So it's not the woman versus man, because that's a classic, classic linear thing. It's like we know we are in this era at the moment where it's about both women and men using our masculinity, driving forward, exploiting everything we can, destroying, mm-hmm. you know, functioning, not being, not passively thinking, not coming together and sharing, but driving forward and creating and using more and more resources. So mm-hmm. but, uh, so it's sort of simplistic of me to say, you know, that the goddess, it's not about the woman, it's about the female in all of us. And all of us men, as you have talked so brilliantly about in the past, the biggest wound in men is we're not able to express our feminine side. We mm-hmm. spend this whole mm-hmm. time hiding emotions because men can only show uh, male drive and women really can only show male drive too. They have to be doing everything. They have to kick ass. They have to be doing it. So mm-hmm. I think what this what this knowledge is showing is sure, a more compassion, more passion one. And as you say, the current state of our mythology has been has been given to us by the likes of TFO Rahali and even his sister, Cecil O'Rahali, who translated the Tarn Bokul, mm-hmm. another cousin of mine. She was a woman, but of course she was a woman in a Victorian 19th century mindset. I mean, I knew her growing up mm-hmm. in the 1970s, but still she had that, basically my family did have a Victorian mindset, although it was in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, and Patrick Pierce made no secret of the fact that he wanted to present the myth in a certain way to encourage the young generation to go out and commit blood sacrifice for the good. Mm-hmm. Of them. So in some way, they, what they did was great. They rescued the old stories at the end of the 19th century and gave them to us, but they gave a twisted version to them, a version that was only going to focus on the vi- on the violence. Aggressive, progressive, take back what's yours, fight, bloodshed. Yeah, but- I suppose I can't just blame the 19th century and the early 20th century because there's great accounts of even the 12th century, 13th century. We used to um, translate versions of the great Greek heroic tales into Irish, even mm-hmm. back in the 8th century. And we would add loads more beheadings, loads more stabbings and loads more like blood gushing through the sky. Wow. Through the air. So we just we did have this hunger. We were either kind of crude and basic in our love for extreme, um, yeah, sort of uh, gore, heavy gore movies um so that was there but yeah it's definitely time for a new reading of our mythology and to see that while all of that's in there and while there's a strong story about for men to stand up and become men and to go through the rituals to get your own masculinity there was also a lot of talk of compassion of harmony of recognizing the seasons of recognizing that there's a world beyond of not exploiting the land and so it seems timely that we reinterpret the myths now if we reinterpret the myths today this again it's going to be biased like i am completely biased by my own conditioning by my own time Mm -hmm. and space and that's the beauty of myths myths are timeless there's a beautiful writer from the hudson gallery in hudson valley in america who writes myths are the mushroom sorry myths are the fruiting bodies of um of mushrooms, of mycelium. So, you know, mus- my- mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of mycelium, of these underground yes. strands. The mycelium is like the, the internet of mushrooms, the little webs under the ground, and then the fruiting body is the mushroom that Ex- we see on the floor. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, Sophie Strand claims that myths are the fruiting bodies of human consciousness. 
so we have the collective collective wisdom of our people. And so they'll always emerge with a different strain. And they'll always uh, emerge with the food that we need and the wisdom and the message and the nourishment that we need at a particular time. And then they spread like spores. That's fucking astounding. That's memetics as well. That's what a a meme is in in the, the Richard Dawkins sense. Exactly. Fucking hell. Yeah, so myths are frustrating because they're not linear, they're not logical, they can be so long-winded. But if I'm going to look, what am I going to be doing in the next few years? I'm going to be really connecting in a lot more with Native American, Indigenous, First Nations people, respectfully, if they would like to Mm -hmm. connect with us. And the other thing, I'm going to try and get my head more and more around myths. And I don't know, you know, myth is like, it's like a drug trip, you know, it's not logical, it's a journey, it'll bring you somewhere new every time. Have you gone looking into the role of psychedelics in in Irish mythology or, or, you know, is there evidence for it or... Yeah, no, I think we talked a little bit about it before on the podcast. And I said, at the time, I was hoping that there was example of... um, that at wakes, you know, that men used to take magic mushrooms because it was told mm-hmm. to me by a professor of philosophy. But since then, I've realized that story from it's in the Folklore Commission in UCD. It actually refers to it says that it says, you know, the, me, the women keened and expressed all their emotions at the wake. And then they went home and the men took mushrooms. They put them on the fire cooked them up and then ate them and I just thought well the person who told me that that was the men taking magic mushrooms to get in touch with their own to go on a trip and get in touch with their emotions but I realised again that story is told in June or July and so the, the magic mushrooms weren't okay. there unless they had dried them from the year before possibly mm-hmm. um, but otherwise it's that vague thought you know the Amanita muscaria the red and white mushroom mm-hmm. the fly agaric a lot of people say the reason why the salmon is often thought of as um, sacred is because it too is speckled with red or brownie red dots and we've got speckled doves as well yes exactly yeah so whether the maybe the yeah maybe the salmon was like a code for the fly agaric um but as we know it's not the most interesting yeah and so that's why you know and the, the other word for mushroom is um Bachon is a word for mushroom or false A&E, growth of one night. But there's another word, um, bullig, bullig or bulligon. And bullig is connected to bulligis. And bulligis is the bubble of insight or the bubble of knowledge. And that's what Shauna, Shauna was looking for. She was looking for the bubbles of knowledge that come from yeah. the bottom of Connell as well. She was looking for that bulligus, exactly. So that bullig wow. is used in the name of certain wild mushrooms. So that could be a hint to show that they were aware that certain wild mushrooms m- Wild mushrooms did give insights to new ways of looking at the world or to give um, wider horizons. I think it's a no-brainer. Like, magic mushrooms grow in Ireland. And, and they, they grow, grow indigenously. And they grow particularly on the sites of the Neolithic sacred ritual site. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not comfortable calling these places tombs like of New Grange and Nowth and Doubt. Like, certainly there's a few. There's been the ashes, the cremated ashes of certain bodies found there, but not many. It seems that, although they might have been tombs for some very elite figures, they were actually ritual sites or sacred sites for for transformation of some description, and particularly Loch Crew, which is the one nearest to me. There's like magic mushrooms up and down it. And when I went about 20 years ago, no one ever dared pick mushrooms or be caught. Now, if you go up there, at the moment, you know, you will see Loads people, people on their yeah. knees all day, and no one's ashamed anymore. People are realizing yeah, this is yeah. part of our culture. We've been doing this for thousands of years. It's all right. It's free. It's healthy. It's going to make us wiser. It's going to expand. Well, mm-hmm. if we do it wisely and carefully and do it set and setting, etc. That was the fantastic Mancon Magan. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat. He's a fascinating individual. Um, check out his new book which you can get at mayobooks.ie and it's called Listen to the Land Speak. 
And also, as Mancon mentioned, he has his own podcast called The Almanac of Ireland. Check that out too. I'll be back next week, hopefully with a boiling hot take. Dog bless. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.